If your Bibles, why don't you join me in 1 Peter chapter 2 together. Last week we left off there in verse 17, well actually two weeks ago. Last Sunday morning we kind of shared some things from a visionary perspective, but uh, pick back up here in our study through 1 Peter this morning in the 18th verse, and we're going to go down through verse 25. And if you do need a Bible, again, the men in the aisles have some copies. Just slip your hand up. They'll be happy to give you a copy of Scripture so you can study together with us and read along for our teaching this morning. And then next Sunday morning, as you notice, chapter 3, verse 1 begins uh, wives. So we'll begin looking at the next section uh, regarding marriage relationships. And you know what? This section of scripture, when we talk about marriage, keep in mind is uh, it's always good to learn as married couples, yes. uh, But you know what? Uh, They always give you basic training before they send you off into the battlefield. So if you're not married yet, uh, good to get equipped and to learn in advance what kind of person you should A, be looking for and the kind of person God intends for you to be as you enter into the marriage relationship. Marriage is a wonderful thing, but it certainly has its challenges as well. Uh, as two human beings try and share a life together, uh, God has an intended way for that to be successful and fruitful. So it uh, be good to look at those things together, especially in a culture where we have a lot of very confused and struggling people and uh, married relationships because of various different reasons. But this morning we're in 1 Peter 2, 18 down through verse 25. And shall we stand together as we read our passage of scripture for this morning's teaching? 1 Peter 2, he begins verse 18 saying, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable if because of conscience toward God one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it if, when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps." who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed." For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And Father, we ask that you'd help us this morning as we open the word of God together to just Lord, be as receptive as possible in our spirit, our soul, our mind. Lord, we want to hear what it is you want to say and what you need to say to each and every one of us this morning that you'd give us an ear to hear what your spirit would say to this part of your church, that you would bless your word as it's sown into our hearts and that you'd speak to us personally and powerfully. Lord, you know what we're asking and exactly what we need. And we pray you'd do such now by your spirit's ministry in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, perhaps in your past or maybe recently you have had to suffer 
as the result of some mistreatment or hurt that's taken place from someone else. And worse yet, maybe that suffering that you endured was totally wrong. Maybe it was completely unjustified. It was undeserved. It was just simply the result of the harsh, the cruel, the wrong treatment of another individual towards you. And the question becomes, what are we supposed to do in those times? And how are we supposed to cope with and respond to that kind of wrongful suffering when it happens in each of our lives? Well, the passage in front of us certainly deals with that particular subject. It gives us some instruction in regards to how we are to cope, how we are to respond, and what we are to do. The background of what we're looking at in this next section of Peter, as we're kind of continuing through it together, this portion of Peter's letter is really dealing a lot now with practical Christianity. Particularly, you'll take notice in last verses we looked at, these verses, the verses ahead of us, this section is dealing with relationships and how we are to interact with one another as Christians. As a Christian, how we are to relate, Peter just talked about, to the unsaved world. He talked about as a Christian, as a, a, a citizen in our society, among the government and police departments and so forth how are we to relate as a christian citizen to those who are in authority over us how are we to respond peter's going to talk about this morning as an employee in a sense to those who are our overseers or our employers peter's going to talk next week in chapter three about how we are to relate to one another relationships in the marriage relationship and you notice there will be continual references as there already has been particularly to two things, submission to one another and submitting ourselves properly in relationships as we should, as well as respect and being respectful to those who God has placed in authority in our lives in these different realms of relationships. The focus of our passage this morning directly is our response to unjust suffering as it may be experienced from uh, our employer or someone who is an overseer or an authority in our life, be it in a place of employment, an organization, so on and so forth. Come with me back to verse 18. Your attention there, Peter says, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear or respect, the idea is. Not only, he says, to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. So the Bible begins its instruction here for the worker to be submissive to their overseer or their employer, you could say, despite the treatment that they experience. He begins with the word servants there, and that word Peter uses refers to the household servant or to the, the household slave. Uh, that would in that culture be fulfilling domestic duties among a household or on an estate that a master may have. And in the Roman culture, uh, slaves working in households and fields for masters was extremely common. It's believed there were upwards to somewhere around 6 million servants or slaves in the ancient Roman culture. One commentator said this regarding the culture at that time. He said, except those slaves were able to save enough money on the side to buy their freedom, slaves were not in a position to achieve freedom. All those slaves and masters cooperated in many households as members of a common family. Laws viewed slaves as property 
as well as people. And some owners abused them as property. And most all owners treated slaves as socially inferior. So this is the role that Peter is addressing here. When he uses the term masters, he's therefore then referring to the overseers who did have, by law, as well as their role, sort of rightful oversight and authority to rule over their servants, to give them commands, to ask things of them, to direct them what to do. In our culture today, we might not have particularly the same in our American society, but this would more be like, if we were to apply it, the employee with their employer, uh, or the worker with their supervisor, or manager, or boss. It's very applicable in the same way. And we see here that God's word commands a servant or worker to be submissive, obedient, to their overseer, to their employer. That word submissive he uses in verse 18, should it be confusing, simply means to be submissive, to be cooperative, obedient to uh, someone's governance over us, someone's decisions that is an authority over us, to yield to the will of the person who is rightfully in charge to be someone who's compliant and cooperative and to fulfill what instructions are given to us to simply do what we are asked. I think a very simple way to illustrate that probably the most clearly would be why what we see and understand among those who are in military or those maybe who have served in a police department, it's what they would call following in order. Those who were ever in military, those who were maybe serving in a law enforcement position, they understand very clearly, and it is essential for there to be successful, safe operation and productive usefulness of what they're doing, working together, that people understand what it means to follow in order. The idea being that when someone of higher rank gives you an instruction, they make a request, if they ask you to perform something, that order is not something to consider as if it's your preference or would you like to do that or even do you really agree with that. When someone in authority gives you an instruction when you're asked or told to do something, you simply follow the order. You simply comply with what is asked of you. That is what it means to be submissive to a superior, to someone who is your rightful overseer. And the Bible is saying that in the workplace, as an employee, that we are to have that type of a response that is the proper God-given response to someone who is an authority over us. We should be submissive to our supervisor. We should be obedient to our employer when we are given instructions from them. The reason is, listen, we work for them. We work for them. They are the one who have supplied us the opportunity to have a job. They are the one who signs our paycheck and gives us our wage. And they are the one who are in a rightful role of authority. And if we're asked to do something, we should simply do what we're asked. Unless it's something completely you know, unethical or, or unscriptural, well then of course we understand in a respectful way we should say, 
you know, sir or ma'am, I, I understand what you're asking me to do and I try to be as obedient and submissive as possible, but I'm sorry, what you're asking me to do here, to, you know, to lie in this situation or, or to do something unethical or illegal, I simply cannot do that and I apologize uh, because that would cross a boundary that I simply can't cross. But other than that, if they ask us to do something, we should do it. If they ask us not to do something, then we should stop doing it. We should refrain from doing it, whether it's a practice, a protocol, whether it's a particular policy they want to enforce or to change. We are simply called to be submissive to those who would be in that role like an employee to an employer. Now, in a culture and in a world today that we live in that is obsessed with entitlement, that is obsessed with personal rights, what I'm saying, let me change that, what the Bible is saying, that sounds really foreign now. That sounds really contradictory because we live in a culture that today is obsessed with entitlements and personal rights and therefore the norm is typically to challenge authority or to only do what I want to do or to only do what I agree with or, or, or to demand my rights. Yet God's ideal, listen, if you're a Christian, is to rise above. God's ideal is to not be conformed to the pattern of this world but to let your mind be renewed to what the will of God is and he says, therefore, servants should be submissive to your masters. Uh, again, this behavior the Bible is asking of us here, it's really not extraordinary. It's really just appropriate. If you just step back and think about it logically, it is just appropriate, acceptable behavior. In any role when someone's in authority, an order should be followed and obedience should be given as we relate to them submissively. Paul says this in Colossians 3 regarding these things. He says, bond servants... Obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers. The idea is just when their eye is on you. Oh, here comes the boss. You know, and, and all of a sudden you comply or you get productive because the boss is coming around. He says, no, that shouldn't be. But he says, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord, not to men. In other words, you serve the Lord through your employer. You serve your employer in a way to please the Lord, to honor Him in what you do, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of inheritance for you serve the Lord Christ. Listen, you serve your employer, you serve your workplace in a way where you do it to the best of your ability, heartily unto the Lord. I tell you this, you may not be able to convince your boss that you deserve a raise, but God can tell your boss you deserve a raise. God can tell your boss to honor you, to promote you. The Bible says that the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord and he can turn it whatever way he wishes. Promotion comes not from the east or the west. It, it comes from the Lord. And God can honor that as you honor him by responding rightly in the way you should. He also speaks of our attitude in submission by simply saying that we should be submissive but with all fear. The idea there, again, is not trembling, cowering fear, but reverence. That, the idea is, is we should do these things in an attitude of respect. So it's not acceptable for me to just be obedient and just be submissive, but to have a, kind of a really rude behavior in the process and be grumbling and plaining and you know, throwing tools or shoving things around. Like, yeah, and, and No, that's disrespectful. We should be courteous in our speech 
We should be appropriate in our attitude and the way that we respond, demonstrating proper reverence. Listen, if that's your supervisor, that's your president, that's your CEO, you should give them the honor that they deserve. That's right. That's acceptable, the Bible's saying. There should be a level of respect in the way we communicate. They deserve considerate speech. They deserve a reverent, respectful attitude. And I tell you this, in our generation, you act like that, you will wig your boss out. Because most people don't. You will honestly stand out and represent that there's a reason why you act in such a way whereby you can represent Christ all the more and create a curiosity of, hey, why is this guy that kind of an employee? And sometimes then the ability is there to connect the dots. Hey, this person who you know, claims to follow the Lord, th th there's a distinction there. And that can become an evident thing and something that can become a great, great testimony. The extent of our submission, he mentions at the end of verse 18 by saying, be submissive. But he says, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. Now, there's the extent of how far our submission goes. Notice, not only to the good and gentle, sometimes we may be blessed with a good-mannered overseer, with a boss that has a, a, you know, a good temperament. They genuinely care about those they supervise. And I've worked for a few different companies over the years, and on one occasion I had an employer who just, praise the Lord, they were a good, gentle individual. They had a good temperament. They really treated everyone with kindness. They were polite. They were considerate with their employees. Uh, they, they were very compassionate and fair, and, and, and they really genuinely cared about those who worked for them. And in such circumstances, would you agree, it's a lot easier to be cooperative. It's a lot easier to be respectful, to just return back the, you know, the good treatment that you are receiving. Yet in a fallen world of sinful and selfish people, typically that genuinely tends to be the exception nowadays rather than the norm. There, more often than not, especially in the ancient culture when Peter was writing in that day, as I read that quote earlier, typically servants and slaves had masters who cared very little about them at all. They were just viewed as property. They were just another number in the household, on the farm, of how many slaves they had. And all they really were concerned with was getting productivity and work out of their slave. And they carried very little despite w what that required or what effect it had on them personally or their family. And as a result, there was a lot of harsh treatment. The temperament of many masters towards their slaves was, was cruel and unkind. It was ruthless. And many overseers were very inconsiderate in their words and behavior and treatment and even the demands they would put on those who worked for them. And here the Bible says, in such a case, God understands the natural reaction when you're treated with harshness and cruelty. The natural reaction then is what? If you're anything like a natural person, then you're a little more prone to want to resist to rebel, to kind of put your foot down, hey, you, don't, you can't treat me like that, to become disrespectful, yet God's word says be respectful and submissive to your masters, and the Bible says it, even if they are harsh, even when they're unkind. Again, the condition of someone that we are interacting with does not regulate our response to the commands of God. Same thing applies in marriage. God tells husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. 
but God doesn't say love your wife if Christ loves the church if she's a really submissive, respectful woman. No, the command is the command. The condition of the person I'm responding to does not affect the command. And the same thing applies here. God is saying, listen, our relating to them does not depend upon how they relate to us. God gives us instruction. And if we are able to then do this, even in the situation where it's harsh and they are unkind maybe towards us, I'll tell you what, when you still are submissive and respectful to someone who's harsh and cruel to you as maybe an employer, what will begin to happen is you will bring conviction to them for their wrong because their conscience will testify to them. And you treat this guy like trash and like dirt and he's never retaliating back to it. And, and God will speak to them when they lay their head down on their pillow at night. God will convict their conscience of their wrongdoing. And I'll tell you what else, as I said earlier, it will bring curiosity. Why, why does this guy respond like that? Why does this particular woman, as compared to other, why does she seem to be continually so polite and respectful, even though I, you know, I know that I, I treat her on occasion in wrong ways and contrary to others who talk back or get nasty. She just, she remains polite and submissive and respectful and just does what I ask. It will create curiosity with the one you're doing that with as well as others who are watching on in your job place. Peter goes on to say, for this is commendable if because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. So again, if we endure unpleasant experiences, suffering wrongfully, retaining that meek, submissive attitude in order to honor God, Peter says that's honorable. Again, you know, let's say you are being harshly treated through words or behavior, and it's completely unfair. You're being dealt with in a way that's unjust, it's hurtful, it's undeserving. Now retaliation is really tempting and you really want to respond in a way different than what you would, and yet out of consciousness towards God, Peter says, if out of consciousness toward God, knowing what pleases God, you pause and consider what response would actually be the most pleasing to God rather than the most satisfying to yourself, he says, this then becomes something that is very commendable to God. This becomes something that is praiseworthy whereby you're thinking about God before your own desires. And you're thinking about the witness of Christ and the way that you can represent God rather than what would just satisfy yourself. And he says this then becomes commendable to God. It's almost as if God appreciatively says, well done, good and faithful servant. It's as if God says, thank you. I know what's happening to you is hurtful. I know what just took place was wrong in the way that you were treated, but thank you. Thank you for responding the way that you did. Thank you for choosing to honor me rather than satisfy yourself. Thank you for thinking about the impact of the witness of Christ because you claim to be a Christian and caring about that and reaching this individual more than just lashing out or returning comment for comment or getting an attitude or being rebellious. And, and he says this becomes commendable. It's something that brings praise from God as he looks upon it. Verse 20, he then goes on saying, for what credit is it if when you're beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But again, when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. So Peter here illustrates the point he's making and he also seems to want to remove any 
erroneous thinking. He says, first of all, in the beginning of verse 20, that there's nothing really admirable whatsoever or profitable about patiently enduring punishment for things that we are at fault for or for errors that we have made. He says, the beginning of verse 20, what credit is it when you're beaten for your faults, for things that you've done wrong, if you take that patiently. So if as a servant or worker, you break the rules, or you violate practices, or you behave wrongly, and you are at fault, and then you experience consequences as the result of the wrongdoing and painful discipline, that's just simply sowing and reaping. That really is just how things are supposed to happen. And really then painful consequences are intended to correct wrong behavior and correct faults so that they're not repeated continuously. So if someone does something wrong, you break a rule, you violate a policy, you speak in a way that you shouldn't speak, and then you, in a sense, receive the due punishment or discipline for that in some way, He says, look, uh, don't pat yourself on the bat of, well, at least I'm being patient. Look, there's nothing praiseworthy about that. That consequence is something that you should quietly embrace. And there's nothing commendable if you've done something wrong. The Bible tells us in Proverbs chapter 20, verse 30, blows that hurt, cleanse away evil, as do stripes the inner depths of the heart. So if I've broken a rule or done something wrong in life and a painful consequence comes... I shouldn't be patting myself on the back if I endure the painful consequence patiently. There's nothing commendable about that. I should just embrace the consequence and let it cleanse out of me and correct me from not repeating the same thing and humbly, quietly just deal with that without thinking I've accomplished something. He says, however, but, and this is the key, verse 20, but when you do good and you still suffer, if you take that patiently, That's what's commendable before God. So Peter tells us it's on those occasions when, let's say, you're completely innocent. Maybe you're just doing your job. You haven't done anything wrong. You haven't done anything to upset or aggravate or to violate a policy. You've done what is completely right, and yet somehow you're still made to suffer. Yet, in that moment, you don't retaliate. You don't come to your defense. You don't resist or fight back. Instead, you just take it patiently. You quietly persevere even though you're being treated wrongly or you're suffering in some way wrongly and you persevere even when it's hard just to please God. Peter says this, that. Now that's commendable. That is something worthwhile and praiseworthy and very admirable because you pleased God before your own thoughts and your own feelings and you put trying to to spiritually reach out to others above, again, the satisfaction of yourself of wanting to return what feels you justly are able to. Jesus spoke of this same kind of thing in Matthew 5. Listen to Jesus' words. He said, you have heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. Whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. Whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. 
He then adds this, for if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even tax collectors do the same. Again, Jesus speaks of some things that sound very, very challenging. And let's be very honest, apart from the supernatural grace of God, I sure can't act like that. With the supernatural grace of God, sometimes I don't act like that. But by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus says, listen, you can rise above and stand out uniquely as my disciple with the love and compassion of Christ in your heart in those moments when things like that happen. Because he says, if you just blend in with the rest of the world and you only love those who love you and you love your friends, but you hate your enemies and you were... He says, look, what different are you than every other person out there? But it's when you respond differently when you choose to respond differently. And that's hard. But by the grace of God, you can deny yourself and say, you know what? I want to honor the Lord. I want to respond in a way where maybe the love in my heart and the compassion and the forgiveness and the response that I, I, I give back in response to this, it blows this person's mind because they know I should have retaliated and I didn't. Or I should have talked back and I didn't. Or I should have said something harsh and I didn't. He says that. That becomes, he says, something that becomes very commendable and praiseworthy before God. Now, in order to encourage us in these matters, it seems the Holy Spirit directs Peter in the next five verses to kind of remind us of the greatest example of these very things that he's talking about and how to successfully practice it. And, of course, who does he point to? None other than Jesus himself. Because he wants to show us through Jesus' example and experience it is possible to endure patiently wrongdoing and it can accomplish something beneficial as well. Regarding suffering wrongfully and patiently, he says in verse 21, for to this you were called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. So take notice here. The Bible teaches that we are actually, and I have to say it because God's word says it, we are actually called to partake of some aspects of the sufferings of Christ himself that he endured during our walk with him. Now I want you to think about some of the sufferings of Christ. Jesus was misunderstood. Jesus was falsely accused. Jesus was verbally attacked and insulted. Jesus was abandoned by those who should have been there for him. Jesus was brutally betrayed. Jesus was set up in traps. Jesus was physically abused. Jesus was publicly humiliated. Does any of that sound familiar in your life on occasion? How to some extent we find that we also partake in our interactions with people on this earth, some of the same aspects of the sufferings of Christ, we've maybe been betrayed. We've been verbally attacked or insulted. We've been in some way abandoned or humiliated or falsely accused or misunderstood wrongly in a situation or abused or harmed in some way. And the Bible says, for to this you were called 
because Christ also suffered for us. See, through connection with him and in order to deepen in relationship with him, the Bible says we are actually called to partake of some aspects of the sufferings of Christ in our own lives. Jesus spoke of this in John 15, 20. He said, a servant is not greater than his master. And if they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Philippians 1.29 says, For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. Paul told Timothy, All who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. This is a spiritual principle the Bible tells us to be aware of, to anticipate in our lives. But notice the verse shows us as well that Jesus modeled for us a pattern that we are to follow of how to handle when we suffer wrongly when we do he says christ suffered for us verse 21 leaving us an example that you should follow his steps now often when we suffer wrongly when we're hurt or mistreated by some painful experience we feel bewildered and we don't know what to do. And we wonder, how am I supposed to respond to this? Or how do I handle this? Or how do I cope? And sadly, our world has set for us a lot of really bad examples. A lot of really wrong patterns of how to retaliate. Or how to defend yourself. Or how to come to your own rights. And come to your own defense. And, and return some back. And don't let anyone do that to you. And, and our world set us a lot of bad patterns and examples out there. And yet the Bible tells us what? That we're not to be conformed to the patterns of the world. But that we're to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. That we might know the will of God for our lives. And Jesus Christ and the way he lived his life in a body of flesh as a man has showed us the will of God in all things. Jesus demonstrated God's will. He set the pattern for us so when we are hurt, when we are mistreated, when you are unjustly dealt with and suffer wrongfully, God says we are then to look at the example of Jesus and how he responded, how he coped, and what he did in those situations as our pattern and example that we would follow the same steps and actions for our own life as we must deal with some of the same. Interesting when you look at the language here that Peter uses in the original text, the, 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 the language he uses speaks of how a language instructor would teach a pupil or a student how to write their letters. And what they would do is they would first write the letter themselves and then they would supply that pattern for their student and they would encourage their student to just trace over the exact lines of the pattern that they set for them. And this is the idea here in the language he uses. That Jesus has gone before us, he set the pattern, he showed us the example and he just says, look, j just emulate my steps. Just do exactly what I've done. Respond in the same way. Again, Jesus was completely innocent. Oftentimes, we're not totally innocent in situations. Jesus was totally innocent. He never did anything wrong, and yet Jesus suffered, and he navigated his way through suffering in the perfect way according to the will of God. I've said this before. I'll say it again. We worship Jesus as God and we follow Jesus as man. The Bible tells us in 1 John 2, 6, He who says he abides in him 
ought to walk just as he walked. We're to look at Jesus' example in all things and to seek to follow his steps even as it pertains to how we deal with suffering wrongly and mistreatment. Peter then explains the exact example Jesus left, continuing in verse 22. He says, Who, Jesus, notice, committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. Take note, once again, what does Peter do? We've pointed this out a few times. Peter uses Scripture, he uses God's Word, and he quotes it to validate and to reinforce his beliefs as well as his spiritual instruction. That's a really great pattern for you as a Christian, and it's a great pattern for you if you want to be a Bible teacher. That you use the Word of God to validate your spiritual beliefs and you use the scripture to be that which reinforces your spiritual instruction. Here we find Peter in verse 22 quoting from Isaiah 53 reminding us there in verse 22 of the sinless life of Jesus Christ. That he was completely innocent. Jesus never erred in behavior. He never did anything wrong. In his actions, he says he committed no sin and he never erred in his thought or his speech in any evil way. In any wrong way, Jesus never thought or spoke something wrong. It says, nor deceit was ever found in his mouth. The Bible teaches the essential doctrine of the sinless life of the Lord Jesus Christ. That in thought, in word, in deed and action, Jesus Christ, when he lived among us as a man, never failed. He never sinned. He never succumbed to any temptation morally or spiritually as we all do as fallen human beings. Jesus, the Bible says, committed no sin. Hebrews 4.15 says Jesus was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says Jesus knew no sin and the sinless life of Jesus was essential so that he could become the perfect sacrifice for our sins to be forgiven when he died for us on the cross. And Peter is seeking to point out here in verse 22 the absolute innocence of Jesus and to emphasize that Jesus was completely innocent yet he still suffered. But how did he respond? As completely innocent when he suffered wrongly. Verse 23, who when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. So he's showing us the pattern Jesus set for us, the example he gave to us. Keep in mind, Peter, having walked with Jesus, he witnessed all these things firsthand. Can you imagine how shocking it really must have been, put yourself in Peter's sandals, to have known Jesus, to have come to understood who he was, God in the flesh, and then to watch Jesus suffer so wrongfully, to watch Jesus uh, be reviled and greatly suffer the beatings and the scourging and the crucifixion and to be mocked through the whole process, and yet to eyewitness that Jesus never reviled in retaliation, that he never angrily threatened his offenders. And Peter's words again here in verse 23, you see allusions back to that 700-year-old prophecy from Isaiah 53 and how Peter was so familiar with it 
and he saw all the dots connecting in the life of Christ. Again, Isaiah 53, 7 says, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shears are silent, so he opened not his mouth. But what did Jesus do? Well, Peter says what he actually did was instead he committed himself, verse 23, to him who judges righteously. Now, don't pass over this. Here's our example again. He didn't revile and return. He didn't retaliate. But what did Jesus do to release the pain, the pressure, the difficulty of being treated wrongfully and being wounded and hurt by someone else? What did he do? To release the pain and the pressure, he communicated with his father. Remember when Jesus was dying on the cross, what's one of the statements he aired? He, he, he expressed, excuse me, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus processed the pain, the mistreatment, the hurt through prayer by communicating with his father who judges righteously and it was through that communication with his father he left us an example as well of how do we cope with, how do we deal with, how do we process pain and hurt. Well, one of the greatest ways is through communication with the father is to pray your way through it and lift it to God and let him help you work through it as you communicate with your loving father who you know like any father will deal with anyone who has wounded you and hurt you and mistreated you and come to your aid. Peter wants to also show in these remaining verses not only how to properly handle and respond mistreatment and unjust suffering, but he also wants to, it seems, assure us that suffering wrongfully, though it doesn't seem like it in the moment, suffering wrongfully can actually still produce wonderful things according to the will of God. And he shows again the greatest example of that who's our Lord Jesus Christ, in his suffering and what it accomplished. Verse 24, he says, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. You see what Peter's showing us here? That Jesus endured suffering, but yet Jesus' suffering that he endured provided something beneficial and helpful for others. It provided salvation and spiritual healing for all of us. Jesus, who remained completely innocent as the sinless one in great temptation, enduring unjust suffering, that was exactly what was necessary to make payment for our sins to be forgiven that we've committed against God. Peter says he was bearing our sins in his own body upon the tree or the wooden cross as he sacrificially and substitutionally suffered wrongfully as the innocent one when others were guilty as he suffered wrongfully out of that by the will of God God brought something wonderful God brought something beneficial he's given you and I now the opportunity to be forgiven of our sin God out of that produced for us the pathway by where we believe upon the finished work of Jesus Christ where we can now, he says, die to sin the old life and we can now live for righteousness. Jesus' suffering is what has liberated me and liberated you from the penalty and the power of sin. And by way of application, sometimes I have seen where patiently suffering 
wrong things in our lives and dealing with the grief and suffering patiently with the wrong treatment of another can actually become something to powerfully liberate that person who's done that from wrongdoing. Because when someone harms someone, someone hurts someone, there is something in their conscience that expects retaliation. Because it just seems like the right thing. <laughs> they expect the retaliation. And when they don't get the retaliation, when they don't get the response that seems appropriate, there's something about that where the conviction of the Spirit of God comes over their heart that sometimes that's the very thing that just like Jesus liberated us from the power of sin and what he did, you enduring that suffering and responding righteously can liberate that person sometimes as they recognize the error of their own ways and they feel convicted and it sets them free because of your loving and gracious response that jolts them in their conscience and makes them recognize what they're doing wrongfully. Now notice as well in verse 24, this reference at the end of the verse Quoting again from Isaiah 53 regarding Jesus, he says, by whose stripes you were healed. That word stripes that Peter used there is actually in the singular in the Greek language and it refers just to a bloody wound. It's a reference, no doubt, to the suffering of Jesus as a whole. The, the beatings, the scourging, the crucifixion. And what the Bible is telling us is that it was the wounding of Christ that has brought about healing for you and I. It appears that the healing Peter refers to here as well is spiritual. The healing experienced in salvation. Now, hear me out. Not to say that Jesus does not and cannot heal us physically as well. I believe he does heal physically. I believe he wants to be gracious on occasions and heal according to the will of God, our physical frames and be compassionate to us. However, the context here does seem to refer to the spiritual healing experienced in salvation. In fact, the word healed there, that word is used elsewhere in New Testament passages to refer to the healing of the inward soul, the inward person rather than the physical frame. The same word is used in Luke 4.18 where it says that Jesus declared, he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. Jesus used the same word to refer to healing a brokenhearted person inwardly. We also see the same word used in Matthew 13 where Jesus speaks of turning the heart so that he may heal a person's inward condition. The greatest healing anyone can ever experience hear me out is the hearing of their soul it's the healing of their inward person great that god heals our physical frames sometimes but listen one day we're going to shed these physical frames but to have your soul healed to have your spirit restored your sins forgiven to experience that healing of the restoration of the soul was the most wonderful thing and the language is even in the past tense by whose stripes you were healed by whose stripes you were healed i want you to hear what this is saying because some of you here this morning may honestly really be in some need of internal healing a healing in your soul, a healing in your spirit, in your psyche, and perhaps you have been put through something in your life that has left deep wounds in your inner being, that has scarred your soul, 
that has wounded you deep on the inside and despite how fractured or fragmented you may be internally today, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, mentally, Isaiah 53 says he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows and Jesus embracing our wounds somehow has supplied an opportunity for there to be healing for the inward soul. For there to be an experience whereby Jesus can heal those broken, fractured pieces in the soul of an individual. And I just want to encourage you this morning, by faith, he is able to heal your soul. Listen, maybe something abusive, horrific, cruel, harmful, hurtful has happened to you. Jesus can heal your soul. You don't have to be a wounded, bleeding victim internally for the rest of your life. Just like Jesus can heal a paralyzed person who has paralyzed legs, Jesus can heal a person who is paralyzed because of pain or hurtful, harmful things that have happened to them that is paralyzing them in their soul. Jesus can heal by his wounds. There is healing available and I encourage you to be open to let the Lord heal you. To by faith say, Jesus, heal my soul, restore my soul, do it, perform it. He's able to. He's able to. I believe it's a wonderful promise that God set before us. Peter concludes verse 25 saying, For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. So Peter kind of concludes the whole thought process here, reminding us, even as Christians, that at one point we were all the greatest offenders. At one point in our life, we were causing grief to the heart of our Lord and our Creator by living in sinful rebellion. At one stage in our life, we were selfishly rejecting God's loving care as our Creator and Overseer. We were like sheep who had wandered away from a good and loving shepherd through sinful living where we were just doing whatever we wanted with our own lives. And yet God, by his grace, though we were lost, rejecting the purpose of our existence, which is to have a relationship with him, God, by his grace, didn't quit on us. He didn't cast you aside and say, it's one less sheep to worry about. He probably went off a cliff by now anyway. God didn't do that, did he? By his grace, he lovingly sought us and pursued us. He invited us to be forgiven and to return to God, to return to the shepherd and the overseer of our soul. And when we embraced Jesus by faith, that's exactly what we did. We returned. We returned to our shepherd. We returned to the overseer who cares about our soul. What a wonderful picture, man. You could take verse 25 and go for a walk with that today and just meditate on the reality of what it means that God is the shepherd and the overseer of your soul. That he has oversight of your inward being, that he cares about it greatly. And how important to exercise faith in our lives to submit to God and what he's doing in situations to submit to him as our overseer of our soul and to trust whatever he's doing. And today, if you're not saved yet, today, if you're still wandering from God, I tell you, if you realize you're a sinner and you recognize only Jesus is the Savior and you're willing to submit to God, you can have this experience yourself. You can be set free from the penalty of sin. You can be set free from the power of sin and you can return 
to the right relationship that God always has intended for your life that you would follow the good shepherd and be in right relationship with the creator and overseer of your soul. He loves you. He loves you. And he's waiting for you to come home. And all you need to do is be willing to believe that and submissively respond to that. Will you let him draw you home? Will you let him become your shepherd and the overseer of your soul? Listen, I promise you, he'll do a much better job leading you than you'll ever do wandering off and leading your own life. And the forgiveness of sins and the hope of eternal life is available to any who simply come to Jesus.